Broadcasting from Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. This is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Happy belated Veterans Day to all of you and welcome to the second installment in our whirlwind tour of America's military apparatus and policy. It's the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here, bringing it to you loud, proud, bringing it to you bigly. Now, when we talk about the military budget, we often talk in terms of is it too big or is it not big enough? And what we never talk about is what that money might do when put to other uses. Now, our next guest did just that. Heidi Peltier, economist and project director for the Costs of War Project, published a paper that discussed the job creation benefits of money spent on national defense, as opposed to other priorities such as education, infrastructure, green energy, and so on. And I'm not going to spoil the surprise, other than to say that it baffles me that we don't have an educational industrial complex in this country now. I'll be back at the end, but until then, Heidi Peltier. Just to start things off, can you introduce yourself to the audience and tell a little bit about what you do? Sure. My name is Heidi Peltier. I'm an economist. And uh, as of a few weeks ago, I'm the, the project director for a new project at Boston University's Pardee Center for the Longer Range Future. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a project on the 20-year costs of war. And it's an extension of the Brown University uh, costs of war project that's been around since 2010, looking at the, the various costs of um, of wars since 9-11, including not only the economic costs, but also the environmental costs, the costs um, in terms of, you know, interest and debt and deficit and all of that, and the humanitarian costs, the political costs, the multidisciplinary and, and wide-ranging costs of wars. And what brought us together was, you know, as I was doing research for this month, uh, I came across a, a paper you'd written on uh, the ancillary effects or the ancillary economic and job creation benefits of the, of the defense sector versus other sectors. And you know, generally, when people in Congress or government authorizes military spending, a big part of that or, or definitely a motivation in that is bringing jobs back to the district. But your paper actually discovered something a little different in terms of what truly is a job creating sector or what kind of funding truly jo- drives job creation. And can you, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Hmm. So, you know, as you mentioned, when we talk about defense spending, when we talk about military spending, we often hear that in connection with how many jobs can be created, what a good thing for the economy it is to, to either be going to war or to, to uh, support the military and what we wanted to do was ask the question, not just does defense spending create jobs, but what are the alternatives? So, you know, if, if we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars in something, whether that's defense or something else, of course, we're going to create jobs. And so the question is, is defense spending really the best way to create jobs? Mm-hmm. And so what this paper did, um, and the most recent version is... Um, 
2017. That was with the Brown University Cost of War Project. Um, but I've written a version of this paper every couple of years or so, going back to about 2007, I think was the first one. Mm-hmm. And in all of those papers, there's a very consistent finding that while defense spending does create jobs, there are other areas that are economically important or politically important or important for, for various reasons that actually create more jobs. Mm -hmm. So we looked at areas like clean energy, education, infrastructure, healthcare. And we asked the question, if we spent the same amount of money in those areas that we do in defense, what would that do for jobs? The the short answer to that is we get more jobs in all those areas than we do in defense. Um, but but I'm sure you're going to ask a follow up question. So I'll, uh, I, I I am yeah because you know one of the things that intrigued me about uh, your report was that some of the areas you mentioned like healthcare and education obviously have some clear positive effects beyond job creation. So an example would be if we invest more in education. Yes, there's that money goes to the teachers and textbooks and computers and all that, but you can also argue produces people who are going to have better earnings in the future and better contribution to the tax base. And in terms of maybe the ancillary positive effects, was there any data you gathered on that? You know, I didn't look at the the data on all of. Um the other areas in terms of, you know, spending a certain amount of money in the education sector, what would that do in terms of, you know, how many people could go to school or how many more teachers we could hire, for example. Um, I really focused on the job creation, um, mm-hmm. but I will mention the National Priorities Project. Yep. I'm on the board of, of NPP, the National Priorities Project, and I actually got interested in, before becoming a board member, I had gotten interested in them because I used some of the data that they provide. And they basically look at the the question of trade-offs in those terms, like how many you know, if, if a community shifted some of its money from defense to, to other things, you mm-hmm. know, how many houses could be weatherized and how many grants could be given for higher education and those kinds of trade-offs, not in terms of just job numbers, but additional sort of benefits like that. And so as far as the, the job creation benefits, the economic benefits, for example, of investing in education or investing in infrastructure, what, what did you find there in terms of comparing those to the defense sector? Well, so if we if we think about you know shifting dollar for dollar, you know taking one dollar away from defense and putting it in something like clean energy or infrastructure, we get about forty percent more jobs in both of those areas. If we're looking at wind energy, solar energy, retrofitting homes and other buildings, um, by retrofitting I mean making more energy efficient mm-hmm. homes and other buildings, and so those types of clean energy investments, if we look at those, or um, infrastructure investments, including, you know, water and transportation and all kinds of infrastructure, those both create about 40% more jobs than defense spending for the same level of spending. Healthcare is an even bigger job creator. So you get about twice as many jobs in healthcare as you do in defense for the same amount of spending. And then, um, the, the real job creator is education, and that's 
you know, primarily because education is a very labor intensive industry. So most of the spending goes to wages and salaries as opposed to going to equipment. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are school buildings and textbooks and desks and all of the, you know, computers and all of that. But a greater proportion of the total spending goes into hiring people as opposed to paying for equipment. And so that's the, the main reason why if you shifted money from defense into education, you'd get the, the biggest job kick. Elementary and secondary education in particular, you get 180% more jobs. So almost three times as many jobs for the same number of dollars. Yeah. So it sounds like the, the bottom line is, you know, when we look at the military budget and we say to ourselves, do we want to spend money on this? We're, we're not just talking about a slice of the the pie of the federal budget. What we're really talking about is also, do we want to sacrifice the additional job creating benefits of investing in another sector that might be more productive? Am I hearing you right there? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why I called the the paper, the job opportunity cost of war, because it really is an opportunity cost, mm-hmm. which in economics, when we talk about that, it's what are we giving up by doing something else? And so what we're giving up is the opportunity to create more jobs. And then, of course, it's the opportunities that you referred to earlier to have a higher educated population um, that generally correlates with a, a more productive workforce that creates with, you know, more economic growth. And so there, there are all kinds of other benefits that would also exist beyond the, the job creation. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it really is a lost opportunity when we're spending money on war, spending money on a, a bloated defense budget, instead of spending money that we could be spending on other priorities that are important to Americans. Yeah. Yeah. And I know one of the things you're, you're working on now, too, is looking at things like the Green New Deal, for example. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to see so much more attention to green growth in general, the Green New Deal in particular. And, you know, one of the questions that comes up with the Green New Deal is how do we pay for this? And there are various ways that we will need to address that question. But one of them is by cutting defense spending. And by shifting, you know, whether it's $100 billion a year, um, which is what's in the war spending at its most narrow definition, you could say, let's cut back $100 billion a year. Mm-hmm. Or if we think over the past, you know, 18 years that we've been at war since 9-11, we've spent an average of $300 billion a year. Now, that's about the amount that Elizabeth Warren is calling for, for a Green New Deal, mm-hmm. that amount per year over the next decade, if we spent $300 billion per year on a Green New Deal instead of on war spending, we would be able to create jobs in green manufacturing and construction in all the related services that go with a green economy, rebuilding infrastructure, making the, the electrical grid not only more efficient, but also more secure, less vulnerable to attack, less vulnerable to breakdown. And so there are, there are all kinds of ways that shifting from war spending to greening the economy, specifically through um, Green New Deal sort of proposals, would be a way that we can not only create jobs, but also shift to things that really are a security threat. Like if we think about security, not just in terms of vulnerability to, to attack by other nations, but vulnerability to all kinds of disasters, including climate change, which is our 
kind of most pressing and biggest potential threat where we really should be investing as a country is in the the kinds of industries and the kinds of programs that will make us able to slow down climate change and adapt to the effects of climate change. You, you mentioned the Green New Deal, and I think I think one of the big anxiety points that anybody has when it comes to cutting the military budget as well is the uh, is the effect that might have on the local economy. And so my, my understanding is that you you have some research on how those jobs could be replaced by green jobs and potentially replaced with more green jobs. Is that, is that right? Or am I, am I wrong there? Yeah, that's right. That's actually the project I'm in the midst of working on right now is thinking about the the aspects of the green new deal that are specifically green manufacturing. So uh, both Sanders and Warren have as parts of their plans, um, green manufacturing money for green manufacturing and uh, plans to uh, have greater government procurement of clean energy, which would stimulate demand for green manufacturing. And this is, I think, one way that we can combat the job losses that could occur, for example, by closing military bases or closing, uh, reducing funding that would go into a community that is dependent on manufacturing a weapon system or manufacturing some components that that are being bought for military contracts. If we think about shifting from war spending to green spending, and we think especially about green manufacturing piece of it, I think that that is going to be a really important focus in protecting against job loss and also making sure that we target those funds to the communities that are uh, most likely to lose jobs from any military cutbacks. Okay. You know, one of the things I, I talked about with with my last guest was the concept of infrastructure on, in a very broad sense being a, a military asset in a way where if you have a nation that is resilient to attacks, if you have a nation that has a, uh, uh, an energy grid with built-in redundancies that isn't as, de- as dependent, for example, on fuel supplies that can be interrupted. You know, these are all things that serve a military purpose as well as a larger purpose of, again, job creation and uh, improving the environment as a whole. And from what I've read as well, you know, this seems to be aligned with the military. So the military themselves is uh, trying to figure out ways where they can be fueled by renewable energy and not have to rely so heavily on fossil fuels, for example, nuclear fuel or, or, or whatnot. You know, I guess I'll, I'll ask this question to you, knowing I'm, I'm kind of throwing you a bit of a curveball here. In your research, do, do you have an idea as to maybe why that angle hasn't been taken or why it seems that it is Green New Deal or military, but there doesn't seem to be a a melding of the two ideas that this is actually good for national security? Well, you know, one one of the ways that I think um, the military industrial complex has uh, protected itself from budgetary cuts, um, from cuts to its own budget, is to disperse funding in such a way that just about every congressional district has some piece of military funding, mm-hmm. which means almost every congressperson is going to be reluctant to cut military spending because they're going to get pressure from 
their own base not to do so, thinking that there will be detrimental economic effects. Now, that's not 100% true across the board. There are communities that that support. There's one in, um, I'm, I'm forgetting which town in Maine that is actually pushing for a base closure. And so the, there are communities that do want to have less defense spending, even if it means fewer dollars coming into their own community. But one of the reasons that defense spending remains so high, um, and this is certainly not the only reason, but one of the reasons is that the money is so widely distributed throughout the country. And then another reason is that there is a, a real revolving door between military contractors and Congress people who are making decisions about funding the military. And so Congress people who know that they may end up with a job for a military contractor afterwards, or who are in Congress now after having worked for a military contractor, and not just Congress, but DOD officials as well. Because of that revolving door between government and military contractors, you get a lot of military contracting and you get weapon systems and all kinds of expenses that are unnecessary, but that promote some very narrow self-interest. Yeah. Do you know, Heidi, so bad habit I have in this podcast is I get really smart, knowledgeable people with a ton of expertise. And then I ask them a question that barely touches on that expertise, but I feel like you opened a door there. And so I, ha- I have to ask you this, or I have to, I have to bring up this topic. And, you know, one okay. thing that's all, always kind of stuck in my head is if you go back to the very beginning of the Bush administration, W's administration, uh, it was pre 9-11. So we were still in that kind of uh, halcyon era where the Soviet Union had fell. Mm-hmm. We had no uh, meaningful military rival. There was peace, the economy was good and so on. And, one of the things that really jumped out at me during the beginning of of the Bush administration was the way they were so focused on getting a missile defense system put up in Eastern Europe. And and I couldn't figure it out because to me, the at the time, the Soviet Union was gone. Russia certainly wasn't the entity it is today. And it just didn't seem to make any sense to me. And then 9-11 came, and of course, that was just sort of a rubber stamp for defense spending, for military spending. And it wasn't until maybe like 2014, 2015, that I, I, I kind of got the feeling that that in the beginning of the Bush era, there was a bunch of latent military spending or a bunch of demand for government contracts from the defense industry that needed a place to go. And that 9-11 pretty much opened the door for that. Are, is my assumption entirely unfounded? Or do you have anything that might either justify that or just shoot this idea down in flames? What I do know is that a tremendous amount of our military budget uh, last, I checked, and I'm not sure what the numbers are this year, mm-hmm. but somewhere around 50% of uh, Department of Defense spending was going to private contractors. Okay. And so uh, so those private contractors are going to have an incentive to keep getting contracts even when we're not at war. 
you know, it, it, in a way it's like, you know, advertising to create a market for a product, right? So it's, yes. it's creating a market for defense industry goods that the contractors can profit from at Got the expense it. of the taxpayer. W- one of the things you had mentioned earlier too was, was just the bloat of the military budget. And I guess when you mm-hmm. look at the military budget, where are some areas you feel that are just obvious places where spending could be cut and diverted towards better, uh, better purposes? Well, there was actually a task force uh, called the Sustainable Defense Task Force just put out a report earlier this year. I think it came out in June 2019, looking at exactly that question. Where are we uh, wasting money on weapon systems that are exorbitantly expensive and haven't proven to be um, of use in any way? Where, where could we make cuts uh, to the budget by shifting some things from contractors, uh, by shifting between civilian and military? In, in some cases, one is kind of more efficient or cost-effective than the other. And, and they look at the, the decade ahead of us and what planned spending is, what the White House has requested what experts have requested, and they identify $1.25 trillion of potential cuts over the next decade, Um, so about $125 billion a year, where we could save on reducing overhead, cutting out some weapon systems that are, are not useful, cutting back the nuclear arsenal. I think that we have enough nuclear power to, to blow the world up, you know, 20 times over or something. Uh. Um, when probably once or twice would be enough. I'd say, yeah, yeah. So there there are lots of, you know, I'm not the the expert in where those cuts can be made, Mm -hmm. but uh, there are experts who have identified those cuts. Mm-hmm. So, so I would, if if anybody listening to the podcast is interested in in pursuing the specific cuts, um, I would have them look at the Sustainable Defense Task Force report from 2019. Yeah, I mean, a couple that jump out at me is, or or one speci- one project that jumps out at me specifically is the M1 Abrams tank, which <laughs> the military has said they don't need any more of. Uh, the factories in Lima, Ohio. So, you know, good luck closing a factory in the middle of the swing state in every presidential election. That's right. And and so it, it sounds to me like what's going on here is we have a a government or at least a Congress that in many ways is beholden to the defense industry by virtue of campaign contributions, lobbying, the defense industry being very astute at uh, making sure that they're making investments in each and every district. And of course, since Congress has given the constitutional authority to allocate spending and allocate military spending, uh, their incentives are such that uh, cutting military spending is not aligned with keeping office. Is that is that fair? Am I hearing you right there? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. You know, there's a a question of temporality, right? So the military spending cuts, if we were to reduce the military budget, um, whether that means shifting it into something else or just taking on less debt, because all of our military, all of our war spending right now is debt financed. Mm -hmm. So uh, side note, interest payments on that are continuing to increase. Mm -hmm. And that's another problem. But 
But, you know, for somebody who's thinking about getting elected this year or next year, they don't want to offer or propose cuts that are, are going to have benefits well into the future when their job is on the line this year. Mm-hmm. So there, there really is a question of uh, self-interest versus public interest. Yeah. Yeah. And the the debt financing really in, in a lot of ways strikes me as a strategic liability uh, because our as of now, our strategic advantage is the ability to spend tons of money and our ability to spend tons of money is entirely due to our ability to finance as an economist, do you have any idea or any any idea of the probability of maybe that well running dry at some point and us having to make some very hard decisions? Well, I think in some ways we already are making hard decisions because of because of this. So um, to the extent that basically since two thousand one, we've been paying for war out of out of debt, and so interest payments are increasing, even if we ended all wars and stopped paying for war right now, those interest payments, those, you know, paying back and paying off the debt and the, the accruing interest, um, that'll continue well into the future. In addition to, you know, paying veterans benefits and, and future healthcare costs and all of that. But just looking at the interest payments, we are already reaching something like 10% of U S federal spending is just paying interest on the debt. Mm-hmm. And so those trillions of dollars could be spent on something that's more productive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think of it comparing it to a household, which it's not always fair to compare government debt to a household. Mm -hmm. A household can go bankrupt in a way that the U.S. government is unlikely to. But if you think about taking out a loan to send your kid to college or to go to college yourself, as opposed to racking up credit card debt to buy more clothing, one of those is likely to pay off for you. And one of those is, you could say, frivolous. Mm -hmm. That's the same way I think about war spending versus spending in education or infrastructure. We can spend on something that's going to make us more productive, more secure, and that's going to improve our quality of life, that's going to make Americans feel better about being Americans. Or we can spend money on things that are destructive, that destroy human life, that destroy the environment, that destroy infrastructure. And either of those might increase the debt. But one of those, if we're we're increasing the debt in order to uh, have a more educated and healthy population, that has positive economic consequences down the line, whereas military spending does not necessarily. Yeah. It's fair to say that right now there is enough there's there's enough apparent bloat in the budget where at least we know that that money could be mo- moved to a more productive area and that's yeah. right so the uh, sustainable defense task force as i said you know has shown that we can take 125 billion per year out of the military budget over the next decade uh, the congressional budget office has also looked at this issue of rising debt and has identified various areas where we could cut back on spending both military and non-military. Mm-hmm. They've identified about a, a trillion dollars of military spending over the next decade, so about $100 billion a year that could be cut. 
And we're spending over $700 billion a year on the military now because we've been at war for the past 18 years. So there's certainly at least $100 billion per year that could be cut from that budget. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, the, the CBO, the Sustainable Defense Task Force and others have, have looked at cutting at least $100 billion. And then other, other groups have gone farther than that. There was a recent op-ed in the New York Times by Lindsay Kashkarian. It was a really nice piece where they show, you know, kind of one piece at a time where you can pull out things from the military budget and they identify uh, $300 billion of cuts there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if we were to cut out, you know, $100 billion from the from the U.S. military budget, or or three hundred billion from the U.S. military budget, and and put that into clean energy, or put that into education. What's the economic output from that in terms of jobs and in terms of income? The last time I crunched these numbers was a paper you referred to in uh, the twenty seventeen paper, and that was for defense spending. You got about seven jobs for every million dollars of spending. Mm-hmm. So. If we were using those same employment multipliers, every billion dollars is about 7,000 jobs that are created through the military or about 10,000 jobs created through clean energy. And that's just per billion. So if we moved a hundred billion, you know, let's take the bigger figure, the $300 billion uh, per year, which is what we've averaged on war since the, the, um, and this is including the the overseas contingency operations, the, what's supposed to be the emergency spending for Mm -hmm. war, uh, including additions to the Pentagon's base budget, including additions to interest payment, all of that. If we think about, you know, $300 billion a year that we've been spending on, on war, we'd create about, or we have created on average, about 2 million jobs in defense. Now, given that uh, clean energy creates about 40% more jobs for the same amount of spending, um, rather than creating 2 million jobs, we would have created 2.8 million jobs. So it's 800,000 jobs that we would have created in clean energy that we didn't. Um, So it's kind of an opportunity cost of 800,000 jobs lost there. And so, so moving forward, you know, we can think about that if we if we were to to shift uh, three hundred billion dollars of war spending into other areas, we could create somewhere in the range of a million to two million jobs by shifting from war to a combination of energy, infrastructure, healthcare, mm-hmm. education. Mm-hmm. The cynical view I always I kind of take is that, and kind of getting back to a, a recurring theme in this conversation is that, you know, the incentive of Congress is to support policies that either drive more campaign contributions or drive more jobs back to the district. Because for better or for worse, those are the two things that unfortunately determine whether they retain office or not. And, and, and given that they could potentially employ more people, let's say building roads, or again, investing in education, um, any idea why the military has such an outsized position? Like, is it just because it involves planes and guns and things that blow things up and people think they're cool? Or is it something, is there something else the defense industry or the military is doing that maybe is, is better than what the construction industry is doing or what the other lobbying groups are doing? Well, you know, I think that there are some some real vested interests in maintaining large military budgets. And there are, you know, some of the, the top contractors, Lockheed Martin and 
Raytheon and General Electric um, that, you know, they make a, a significant chunk of money off of military contracts. And so they're going to have a real incentive to keep those military contracts coming, to keep defense spending high enough uh, to maintain their own profitability. Whereas, you know, the, the education industry is tremendously important for us as a country, but it's not a tremendously profitable sector where you're going to get lobbyists, you know, fighting as hard for education spending as you are defense lobbyists fighting for defense spending. Um, so there's a, a real, you know, disparity in the resources that each sector has available to it to advocate for for spending in its own interest. So ultimately, the profit margins for selling an F-35, for example, are going to be better than selling textbooks or laptops or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, cool. So if I'm, if I'm running for office or if I nominate you for office and I'm, I'm giving my position to the, to the American people, it's effectively going to be that debt is a threat to the, to the long-term prosperity of this country. Uh, there is a clear amount of bloat in the military budget and diverting it towards other industries could not just only reduce that debt burden, but also potentially bring more manufacturing jobs back to places that sorely need it. Does that sound about right? Or yeah, yeah, I think that's a, a good. All right, idea. good. I'm not I'm not filing papers yet, but that's uh, that's that's a good start. So, well, awesome. Well, I I I appreciate your time, Heidi, your knowledge and your patience with some of my oddball questions. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the the conversation and the invitation to be on your show. Now, currently half of all discretionary spending, that is money not slated for Social Security and Medicare, is spent on the military. And as Heidi mentioned, there's a real opportunity cost presented both from a quality of life and a job creation standpoint when we choose not to invest in areas outside of defense. Now, here's another little factoid about our federal budget that's interesting. The military is the third largest expenditure in our federal budget. The fourth is interest payments on the national debt. And in 2017, we actually spent one third the amount on education than we did paying interest on our national debt. And that number keeps growing. Um, It's really becoming less of a question as to what we should do with our money and more what we must do. And I think it's unrealistic to assume that we can have the world's largest military, low public debt, and low taxes at the exact same time. Now, next week, I've got Master Sergeant of the U.S. Army, Benari Poulton, to join me, talking about this subject as well as the life of our enlisted men and women. Hope you'll join me. As always, special thanks to Kvelertak, my brothers from the north, for lending us the theme music, and to my producer, Jason Putney, Sweating it out in North Kakalaka and editing out all my ums and ahs. Until the next, this is Dan Sally, signing off. <laughs>